This episode is brought to you by Pete's. Few things start your day better than a good coffee. That's why Pete's hand roast their coffee from a specific selection of high-quality beans. And they don't just put those beans into anyone's hands. Pete's trains their roasters for 10,000 hours so they can master the roast that gives you the most. Pete's Coffee. Coffee for coffee people. Find Pete's online or at your local retailer. Hosted on dimlywit.com. I'm Alex. And I'm Tina. And this is Obsessed with the Best. We're two New York City gals who are bringing you the best of the best of all things beauty, wellness, and inspirational women. We've tried it all and can't wait to tell you what's worth obsessing over. Join us each week as we share our favorite products and trends and chat with leading female founders and experts. Welcome to Obsessed Obsessed with with the Best with with Alex and Tina. Tina. So I just wanted to give a little trigger warning for this episode. We will be discussing sexual violence and sexual trauma. So if that is not where your brain is at today, go ahead and skip this episode and come back later. Also, a great companion to this episode is our episode 420, where we interview a nurse practitioner who used to practice in Missouri and now practices in New York City. She, as a healthcare professional, walks us through some examples of why a doctor would recommend termination of pregnancy in order to save a woman's life. She explains these medical issues like preeclampsia, ectopic pregnancies, heart conditions, cancer, and more, and it's very enlightening. We are absolutely honored and thrilled to be talking to Michelle Goodwin today. Michelle Goodwin is an acclaimed bioethicist, constitutional law scholar, and prolific author who serves as the Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Irvine, where she directs the Center of Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She serves on the Executive Committee and National Board of the American Constitution Society and previously on the Executive Committee of the ACLU. She was the first woman to be elected Secretary General of the International Academy of Law and Mental Health, and she is the author and editor of six books, including Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. She ranks among the most cited professors in the field of bioethics and is a sought-after public commentator, having been featured in print, radio, and television news. Outside of the classroom, Dr. Goodwin is the executive producer of Ms. Studios and host of the popular podcast, On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. Please welcome Michelle. So, Michelle, I was watching the 2017 documentary Birthright, A War Story, which I highly recommend which you are in, you contribute to it, you're commenting on it. And I just thought, who is this incredibly smart, well-spoken, gorgeous woman? You were just like jumped through the screen. And I wrote your name down and researched you and bought your book and have been following you ever since and just could not wait to get you on the podcast. So thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast. Thank you. So and I love something... the name Obsessed with the Past. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So something that really drew me to you and that continues to draw me to you is that you're always going back to history to help us understand today. And kind of your point and the argument that you make over and over is that this attempt to take away our reproductive rights is not out of nowhere. It's not a big shock as of late. It, it's actually the pinnacle of a deep, some deep-seated, deep-rooted work that's been going on for a long time. So 
in your 2020 book, Policing the Womb, you highlight actual cases where women and mothers have been criminalized. Can you tell us about your book and kind of what inspired you to write it? Thank you so much for that question, Alex. So the book, Policing the Womb and Visible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood, is a culmination of 10 years of research built on another 10 years before that of being concerned about the reproductive healthcare landscape. I mean, and, and my concern within these spaces don't just date back within 20 years, but it's 20 years of writing about these concerns and initially hoping that individuals who work in criminal justice would see this as a criminal justice issue when women were being policed for conduct related to their pregnancies, or that people who work in feminist jurisprudence, let's say, would say that, yes, black and brown women who are being surveilled and policed because of what's happening with regard to their pregnancies are worthy of feminist attention. And I saw real gaps in that there were black and brown women, Asian women that were being policed, surveilled, charged for matters involving stillbirth, miscarriage, and so forth. And yet the discourse wasn't responding to, relating to what was happening in the broader social justice movements that wasn't taking place either. And so what am I talking about? A case like Rene Gibbs, who is from Mississippi, 16, charged with depraved heart murder after having a stillbirth. Regina McKnight, 23-year-old Black woman, the first in the country to be charged with um, murder for having a stillbirth. Um, Bebe Shui, charged with first-degree murder after she attempts to kill herself while she's pregnant because her boyfriend leaves her and she eats six packets of rat poison. I mean, case after case of the surveilling, the policing, uh, the harmful conduct, the punitive conduct towards women because of their pregnancies. And this is years before Dobbs. And so we're talking about the kind of punitive engagement by the state against these women when they could have had abortions. Right. And there's a bit of an irony in this, these matters, too, because these women lived in states that have become notorious for their anti-abortion stance. And so on one hand, one can see it as consistent that the policing and surveilling that was taking place in the late 1980s and 90s stitched together with the kind of anti-abortion type of conduct that's taking place, legislation and policing that's taking place today. But you know, Alex, there's even a longer history than even going back to the 1980s and 90s. There's going back to the 1600s and 1700s with the forced reproduction of black women and then the kidnapping and taking of their children away from them and the selling of their children and the forcing these women to bear children and the rapes and the sexual assaults that yet still don't uh, receive the treatment that they should within common discourse, whether that's in journalism or within academic spaces. And so my work has sought to elevate both the old, old, one might say, 
um, that's part of the fabric of what became the United States, um, but as well as the recent old in terms of the drive towards mass incarceration, the uh, punitive lens uh, focused on poor women generally and women of color specifically, um, the ways in which states engaged in these horrible practices of shackling poor pregnant women who were incarcerated because they used a drug during pregnancy. So my work in policing the womb captures that and along with so much more, which I'm happy to talk about. So much more. And I've heard you talk about the connection between the 13th Amendment and I'm quoting you, involuntary reproductive servitude. Can you walk us through what you mean by that? Yes. Well, I'm glad that you asked the question because there's a way in which we jump over American slavery. It's something that's seemingly exhausting for Americans to contend with. And in fact, we know this given the controversies of these times where there are efforts to ban books, burn books, et cetera, that capture these histories. And in the very reductive, simplistic way in which we tell a story about slavery in the United States, it's Black people in a bucolic field who wouldn't want to romp through this field of lush green, and they're picking soft little balls of cotton and putting them in these sturdy sacks, and they're singing songs. And that's America's reductive version of slavery. Now, that is a horrific version of slavery itself, to be clear. People who've been kidnapped, people who are forced into uncompensated labor, people who are punished if they don't pick these little soft balls of cotton and put them in the sack, such as um, being whipped unmercifully or even being killed. Some of the earliest American laws in the colonies and in the states were that it would uh, be no punishment for the actual killing of an enslaved person because enslaved persons were not considered persons at all. They were considered property and you cannot be held liable or guilty for the destruction of the property that you own, right? You can rip your own dress if you want to. You can ki kill your own pig and eat it. You can do the same with your cow and black people had no status higher than a pig, a goat, a sheep. But that's one version of American uh, slavery. And what's missed, what's not told in that version of American slavery, and there are many versions to tell, but that which centers the lives of Black girls and Black women. Thomas Jefferson famously wrote to a politician that it was overstated the value of Black men on a plantation. He said that he much preferred Black women because they were regularly turning a profit every year or two. And what Thomas Jefferson meant by that was that this forced breeding of Black women. How do we know this? We know it because it was all around. It was so ubiquitously talked about, for example, in advertisements. Key to the advertisements of the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s related to slavery were two types. There were the advertisements that listed the people that you wanted to sell. Right? That's not shocking when we think about it. If your enterprise is slavery, if you own plantations, if you own people, then you may wish to sell people. So that's one version of advertisement. I mean, there are thousands of them, newspapers all over the place. And these advertisements then described 
the people that they were selling, such as breeding winch and the value of the breeding winch, that the breeding winch can breed, because clearly that's an important adjective, um, but that also this breeding winch um, also may be a good seamstress, you know, may be good at ironing. But then there's another kind of advertisement, which seems logical to the times, um, especially given the 1850 fugitive slave law, which is that when those breeding winches and others have escaped seeking freedom. So two types of advertisements all over, thousands of them in American newspapers from far east to the west. And in those advertisements, they would be such that Maria, 18 years old, has escaped with her two-year-old child, mulatto child, Lisa, and then, you know, who to return her to in the amount for the reward. And what you find in these advertisements is this more complex American slavery. Um, this, as horrific as the other, if not more horrific, because embedded in this slavery that we can see from the advertisements and also from speeches of abolitionists and the writings and so much more, is the sexual predation, the rapes, the sexual assault that are inflicted, not just on grown women, but on little girls as well, and that they are being forced into breeding, they are being forced into pregnancies, they're being forced against their will to carry these pregnancies for the benefit of people who claim some form of authority over their lives, over their bodies, such that what we see today is part of a very old playbook. And interestingly enough, it connects to the very same states, the state of Mississippi, which brings about the Dobbs case. Mississippi was notorious for American slavery. It was one of the states that if you were enslaved, you did not want to be sent to Mississippi for its cruelty, for its cruelty in forced breeding, for its cruelty in terms of punishment. I mean, it was just such a horrific place, horrific for its punishments like lynchings, horrific for its treatment of abolitionists, which is also a part of the American slave story that's not told how those abolitionists saw all of this and fought against it, including risking their own lives, including capturing things that are hard for us to contend with for any number of reasons, but the facts are there, such as little girls committing suicide, little black girls committing suicide, such that they don't want that life ahead. And also stories like that of Margaret Garner, Margaret Garner, her story is memorialized by Toni Morrison. She's this black mom who, I mean, it's just frightening what she endured, but what she endured was so common to black women. By the time she's 21, 22 years old, she's already had four or five or six pregnancies. She already has several kids uh, and she's had enough. She's been on this Kentucky plantation and she wants to leave. She's been raped enough. She's been forced to breed enough. Um, and so one day um, in January, in the depths of cold, she has the bold desire that she's going to walk across this river that separates Kentucky from Cincinnati. And so without the benefit of a parka, Uggs, or any of the things that keep us warm when we go outside, Margaret Garner, along with her kids, she's 21, 22 years old, and companions, she dares to begin walking off this plantation. And she is committed to getting to Cincinnati where she understands there is freedom 
She walks across a frozen river. I mean, this is just how committed and daring she is and so many of those other women that we just don't bring to light. And then the story of Margaret Garner is that when she hears the slave catchers approaching the safe house where she is, she grabs the first child and she slits that child's throat. And then she grabs the second child. And as she's trying to slit that child's throat, she is overcome by this group of men who are part of those that are slave um, agents, these people who are seeking to return her to slavery and the person who owned her. And they overtake her in the narrative that we know from history with this, because it's captured in newspapers all across the country and the world, is that she fought mightily and she said that she never wanted her children to go back to a system of enslavement and that she refused to go. She'd rather be dead and rather that they be dead too. And this was part of the narrative. And when abolitionists came to her trial, and it's worth noting, and then I'll end on this. So it's worth noting that the lawyer who took on her case thought it would be better that she was charged with murder in Cincinnati rather than to be sent back a slave to Kentucky. That says a whole lot better to stand trial as a murderess. That says a whole lot. That is shocking. Doesn't it? That is shocking. Rather than to go back. And as the abolitionists came and covered the trial, they remarked about all of the bruises on her back, the bruises on her chest and her cheeks, the light complexion of her children, And she is sent back and she is dead within three years of that. So, you know, when we think about these histories and this is the whole point of thinking about what was the purpose of the 13th Amendment, the 13th Amendment wasn't about just this sort of story that we have embellished of the beautiful cotton fields. It is the story of women like Margaret Garner Celia the slave. It is the story of the eight-year-olds jumping off the top of houses. It it is the story of Sally Hemings, who goes to Paris at 14 and comes back pregnant at 16 with Thomas Jefferson's offspring. This is the American slavery that we have failed to confront and to engage in our country. It's what you don't learn about. So we, I have to give a shout out to my friend Claire, who's a current law student at St. Louis University. And your essay in the 2021 Connecticut Law Review, Pregnancy and the New Jane Crow, was part of her curriculum. And she sent it over to me. Can you explain the connection that you're making between current laws and criminalization around reproduction and the Jim Crow laws of the past? And let me... Thank you again, Alex, for your research and preparing for this episode, because it's very, very clear that the amount of research that you do in pulling together each episode of your show. So yes, this, what I've been calling the new Jane Crow, I have to give um, all honor to Polly Murray. So Polly Murray uh, was a lawyer an activist, a theologian. Polly Murray lived in the last century, died in the last century. And Polly Murray coined the term Jane Crow. So Polly Murray worked, um, she was a board member at the ACLU decades before uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg got there. She graduated first in her class from Howard University Law School long before Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduated first in her class 
from uh, Columbia Law School. Ruth Bader Ginsburg started off at Harvard, but went to Columbia. Um, and the reason why I mention that is that Polly Murray was key to what we understand in terms of liberation movements for women and also liberation movements for people of color. It is said that her paper from law school as a student served as the backdrop for the argumentation in Brown v. Board of Education. In 1945, she published a, an article in the California Law Review about sex inequality in law. 1945, this Black woman, who these days is considered a queer Black woman and considered that herself, um, did this amazing work. So anyway, she comes up with this terminology of Jane Crow to describe this intersecting discrimination that is experienced by uh, women of color during the period of Jim Crow, such that it's not just, although horrific as it is, the kind of Jim Crow policies that she documents in a book that she wrote called a race laws in the United States, which Thurgood Marshall called the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. And in those laws, there were laws such as Black people may not play checkers in the park, Black people may not play chess in the park, Black people may not enter the front of a restaurant, Black people may not sit in a taxi. I mean, just you can't even make up just the prurient ridiculousness of these harmful laws. I mean, makes one wonder who in the world sits in a state house dreaming up a law that black people may not bowl right you know of all of the agendas that one could try to bring to the american south such as how about industrializing so how, how about making sure that people are well educated how how about making sure that those coal mines are safe but instead these are the kinds of laws that are curated well, when we think about Jane Crow laws, Jane Crow laws, one might say, were the ones that barred women from being able to serve on juries, that barred women from being able to get banking accounts in their own names, that barred women from being able to get um, credit cards in their own names, like any myriad of laws that we don't pay attention to today, but that were real impediments towards the progress of women. And what we see in the new Jane Crow is this playbook revisited? I mean, let's take a look at it post-Dobbs. We could even look pre-Dobbs, which people weren't paying attention to and I was writing about, but post-Dobbs, there have been attacks on librarians being able to help people search the term abortion. There are threats about women being able to have abortion, such as in South Carolina, we have lawmakers that are proposing legislation that women experience the death penalty. Uh, if they seek to terminate a pregnancy, we might consider the Jane Crow laws those that would trap women if they go out of state in order to get reproductive uh, health care. There are any number of uh, laws that are come and practices that are coming to be in the post-op era that specifically target women and treat them as second class citizens, as unequal citizens these kinds of laws that parallel in many ways Jim Crow type of laws. And let me give you um, a really clear example. One of the things that the NAACP fought against during the civil rights movement was the efforts 
um, by states to get their membership list, right? So states could then intimidate people that were members and keep them from talking about freedom and about their rights. And so states wanted to, to find out, well, NAACP, give us your list. Let's see who you associate with. Let's see who you talk with, right? These are the people that are aiding and abetting you as you try to be free and full citizen. Well, what do we see today? But these anti-abortion laws that target people that may aid or abet you in the termination of your pregnancy, which is who would you talk to? Who would you associate with? It's like pulling straight from that playbook and it's part of the same. It comes from the same type of space that is not one that embraces freedom, joy, and liberation for all. Absolutely not. Shell, you have said this is your quote, black women are like the canaries in the coal mine, meaning what happens to black women first will likely happen to everyone else later. Can you expand on what you mean by that? Yes. You know, one really sees this in the efforts to police and criminalize the reproductive conduct of black women during the late 1980s, 1990s. There's this Mm, imperfect storm rather than calling it a perfect storm where there is the Reagan administration that's putting forth a narrative that is interpreted about black women and 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 Reagan is doing certain signaling right so when he's talking about welfare queen the media picks it up that oh this is this is a black woman this is an overweight lazy black woman with woman with too many kids and these welfare queens, plurals, many of them all around are people that are sucking energy, sucking uh, resources from the FISC. These are women that we have to watch out for because not only are they having too many kids, not only are they lazy, um, but these are women who are also criminal, right? In that they're trying to defraud the state by getting welfare benefits that they and their children do not deserve. At this very same time, you hear the rhetoric coming from the Reagan administration about the war on drugs. And the war on drugs also has its racialized view. It looks black and brown. It doesn't look inclusive, which is actually what it would be, right? You know, black and brown people don't use drugs at any rate that's different than white people do. But the war on drugs is certainly not an equal war. Uh, it is a war that is waged on black and brown people. Well, at the intersection of that in the late 1980s and 90s ends up being the surveillance and the reporting on black women in relation to their pregnancies. You know, it's the bad mom space. It's the crack mom space. It's the crack baby space. You know, the image at that time is not a white woman who is using powdered or crystallized cocaine and giving birth. It's very specifically the image of a black woman. Um, the images on news of the children are of black babies. It's not any other community's babies for the most part. And it's worth even, you know, clarifying that First of all, there's really no such thing as a crack mom. The research of Hallam Hurt and Claire Coles, researchers who had spent decades studying the interface between myriad uh, drugs and intoxicants um, and their effects on the maternal fetal interface. And their work, as surprising as it was, revealed time and again that the narrative that was being pushed 
by lawmakers and being pushed by those who had an interest in pushing it was just simply not accurate. They were not seeing the kinds of conditions that politicians um, were expressing. My point being black women, the canaries in the coal mine is that what motivated lawmakers to do that kind of surveilling, policing, stereotyping that ultimately led to criminal punishment would open the door later for other communities of women. We know at the time that black women were 10 times more likely to have law enforcement called on them and their children taken away than white women when they were experiencing the same rate of drug use. And even though at that time that disparity existed, the very fact that one could have um, law enforcement use existing laws, which were child abuse statutes, to elevate the status of an embryo or a fetus to that of a child. If, if they could do it then against Black women, they could do it later, such as at that time when Black women were being accosted by police and prosecuted by prosecutors, quite frequently the laws that they were turning to were child abuse statutes, right? So they're basically saying, you know, this eight-week fetus is a child. It's unheard of. That had never been done before. You know, this 12-week fetus is a child, right? Like, that, it had not been done. I mean, even in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court called the fetus a potential life. But here it was, the late 1980s and 90s, with prosecutors basically establishing against Black women that their fetuses were children. And so my perspective then in writing about this was that, look, one day this will come to nip at white women too. It, it, the precedent is set. And once the precedent is set and the other conditions are met, then this will be a concern that white women will have to take up. And that's the danger with leaving black women out on their own and not rendering them support in the, 18, in the 1980s and 90s. Exactly. So guys, Tina and I love therapy. We have weekly FaceTime therapy sessions, and it's what gives us the tools to help us through all the things that come up in life, relationship, career issues, self-esteem building, learning boundaries, you name it. So BetterHelp offers easy, accessible, and affordable affordable virtual therapy options. So first of all, finding a therapist can be really daunting. And with BetterHelp, you don't have to do any of the research because they will do that work for you and they'll match you with a therapist in under 48 hours. Second, it's incredibly convenient because you don't even have to leave your home. BetterHelp offers video, phone, and live chat sessions. It's honestly always a good time to invest in yourself and invest in your mental health. So Give BetterHelp a try and see for yourself why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp. We have a special offer just for our obsessed listeners. So for 10% off your first month of professional virtual therapy, just go to BetterHelp.com and enter code OBSESSED at checkout. That is BetterHelp.com with code Obsessed at checkout for 10% off your first month of virtual therapy. For more information, just scroll down to the bottom of the show notes for this episode. And thank you, BetterHelp, for sponsoring this podcast. Can you define the term fetal personhood? 
And you mentioned in South Carolina they're proposing the death penalty for women who have had abortions. Is that an argument that they are using? Yes. Well, this the fetal personhood movement has its various iterations that have somehow come together. But the basic idea of it is that an embryo or a fetus has the qualities of a born person and that the only barrier happens to be skin. Otherwise, this fetus would be a child. It's just simply unborn. And it is um, unborn because it is still uh, being harbored by this gestating person. The fetal personhood movement has uh, grown to try to incorporate a constitutional status to the fetus that it didn't have, right? So in Roe v. Wade, Justice Blackman, who writes the opinion in Roe, Roe is a seven to two opinion. And the court at the time, five of those seven justices are Republican appointed, and so is Justice Blackman. The articulation in the case is that um, there is a potential life that happens to be associated with pregnancy. It's not a guaranteed life, which is accurate. The 14th Amendment actually addresses this issue. The first sentence of the 14th Amendment establishes that people with rights are individuals that are born. Born is actually the word that is used in the Constitution. But in the space of an anti-abortion movement and anti-abortion sentiment making its way into uh, the nomenclature of judicial opinions, unborn has now become a term. And unborn associated also with life being something that is sustainable at the point of conception. Now, medically, scientifically, there's so much inaccuracy with this because historically, um, 15 to 20% of pregnancies will end in miscarriage, stillbirth, as just the baseline. It's just historically true. So there is no firm matter of, uh, un, there is no such thing as unborn. Um, and there's also no such thing as viability because there is no guarantee until there is actually a birth um, of whether there is a child that will survive. So the person personhood relates, and I know there's a very long way of addressing it. That's because there's not been a firm, it's, it's been a, an evolving framework, right, over time, such that personhood, this idea that there is a, a legal identity to be respected and protected by law, is crystallizing now post Dobbs, whereas before personhood was in living born persons, such as yourself, myself, uh, people that we can see. Now within the context of an anti-abortion movement, personhood has come to be associated with embryos and with fetuses. Michelle, what do you know about the lawsuit that the Center for Reproductive Rights filed on, um, on March 6th against the state of Texas on behalf of the five women who 
They wanted to be pregnant. They were excited to be pregnant, but they all faced life-threatening complications and were denied care. I mean, I know what I've read. And I also feel like I, my other question is, why isn't this getting more attention? I'd love to have you walk us through what you know about it. Yes. So let's start with why it's not getting that much attention. There's an accountability problem within this space. That is to say that media is very is far behind covering the concerns of women. Um, it just is. One can also attach that to people with the capacity for pregnancy and LGBTQ folks and individuals with disabilities, but just way behind, way behind. Much of the matters that we've been discussing should have been, should have been able to have uh, its own platform within um, contemporary media and discourse, and it just simply hasn't. The concerns of women have been relegated to the sidelines. This has been historically true, and it continues in, in these contemporary times, even while I think that the perspective from some editors is that, look, we're giving some ink to the space. You know, we're giving time to it, but clearly not enough. So the case that you're mentioning in Texas is a, is a unique one in that it is a case that's being brought by women. In recent years, many of the cases brought to fight back against uh, encroachment on reproductive freedoms have been brought by clinics and have been brought by doctors. Those are individuals who've been interpreted to have standing in these cases, meaning that they are affected by the constraints that have been imposed on abortion. In this case, these are women who are not seeking to originally have abortions, as you mentioned. These are women who were delighted about their pregnancies. They wanted their pregnancies. Amongst them, even um, women who did not necessarily see themselves on the side of the re reproductive freedom cause. But it was because of matters with their pregnancies, which, you know, which, which happened during pregnancy uh, that have brought them to light. Specifically, these are women who experienced dramatic harms horrific harms as they were seeking to carry their pregnancies to term. In the case of one of the women, she was gestating uh, twin fetuses and one of the fetuses died in utero, placing at risk the health of the other fetus as well as her own life. In the case of others, they had fetuses that were developing without um, skulls. In uh, one of those cases was a woman who became septic and became so uh, close to death that it was at that point that her doctors agreed to intervene. But this was after um, prior attempts by this woman to get her doctors to pay attention to her. The pain that she was suffering the near-death condition that she was enduring. But in the state of Texas, the risks for doctors, if they're found to have violated Texas's law, which is a matter of interpretation for prosecutors, the risks, though, could be losing your medical license to practice. Something takes a long time to get a medical degree. The risks include a $100,000 fine, and the risks include up to 99 years incarceration. 
So you have doctors in Texas and the women have articulated in their press conference that they do not hold animus against their doctors. They realize the constraints that their doctors are under because of these Texas laws that make them vulnerable, make put place their lives at risk, but it also places their doctor's um, ability to provide care for them at risk. And that's what makes this case unique in so many ways that you have women who wanted to be pregnant, but who understood the urgency of being able to terminate those pregnancies in order to save their lives. Persuasive, but is it persuasive enough uh, in a space that has just become um, unmoored, unhinged, um, lacking sympathy and compassion, and so punitive um, towards the life of uh, pregnant persons? I am from Missouri originally, live in New York City. My whole family is in Missouri. And what's happening there as well is incredibly scary. And I'm very scared that the people I love are not going to be able to get the health care that they need, even if they like these women, even if they are pregnant and God forbid something goes wrong. And it feels like once you become pregnant, you give up a lot of your rights. Also in Missouri, you cannot file, you cannot um, finalize your divorce while you're pregnant either. So wh- why do we not care about women's health and well-being once they are pregnant? And are there any laws that are protecting the women in these circumstances? Well, the state of California has sought to be as comprehensive as possible in protecting myriad areas of reproductive health and rights aiming towards justice, right? Because when we begin to think about reproductive rights as not just abortion, abortion is important, but the plural, then the plural includes contraception, sex education, and and so much more. So what you're touching on in terms of the Missouri story and how it ends up impacting areas of one's life um, outside of health. Health is critically important, but how states are stitching together a reality that really is a kind of modern day handmaid's tale. In my book, I open with the story of Marlise Munoz, who brain dead at 14 weeks of pregnancy. Her family was not allowed to um, have stand the do not resuscitate order Instead, the state of Texas, which takes control over pregnant dead women's bodies such that their families are not able to intervene. It's another example of this. Um, Rebecca Hamowitz, who's a filmmaker, teaches at NYU, did a documentary called 62 Days, where she follows this case. And for 62 days, Marlisa's body rotted, literally rotting because she was brain dead as she as the hospital acting as an agent of the state poked and prodded her body put her on a shaking bed intubated her all of these things for the purpose of making her a a mammal gestator you know um a a human gestator her father marlisa's father commented how her skin went from supple to hard like a mannequin he said 
her husband, Eric, commented on the stench of her body, which of course, anything that is dead after three days that it begins to smell, the rot begins to sink in. 62 days of rotting away. And what a torture. Not only, you know, does it desecrate then the body of the person who's now dead and gestating, but what message does it send to the family? I mean, it's just so absolutely cruel um, to the family. And so, yes, we're finding that there are myriad ways in which states are engaging in practices that undermine any kind of integrity and dignity related to being part of a human species. And in some of these states, they do not make an exception for rape or incest. And also in your essay, you cite a study in the American Journal of Obstetrics that there are around 32,000 pregnancies each year as a result of rape. I don't think people know that. When people discuss, it seems to be like, oh, well, that's only once in a while. Like that number was really made an impression on me. Well, um, rape and we we are in a culture where violence has played such a dominant role and is playing such a dominant role in our society today. Much of it is seen with gun violence, but the sexual violence is also real and far more pervasive than what we account for. And the consequences associated with that sexual violence end up being unintended, unwanted pregnancies. And the kind of new taste of these laws, the new narrative, is to refuse to carve out exceptions for matters of rape and incest, which would have been a bridge too far years ago. So five or six years ago to even propose an anti-abortion or a law or an abortion, something, a law that constrains abortion rights that didn't have this exception would have been shot down right away, including by Republicans. But these days in part of what is like a cult-like frenzy that seeks to be so punitive. There's no room even for that. And for the states that have enacted abortion restrictions, but yet making exceptions for rape or incest, it's not an easy hurdle to overcome because the states require police reports. And from the perspective that's been articulated by lawmakers, what's the big deal? File a police report. Well, in cases of incest, Filing the police report against a loved one could mean um, further harm to the person, to the girl who's been harmed. The very idea of knowing if you're 10 years old where the police station is, getting to the police station at 9 or 10 or 11 years old to file a report, uh, you know, so these laws are so deeply out of touch, even when the exceptions may be baked in. They're not easier. You can think about the trauma of being raped, where one wants medical attention, the love and comfort of friends, and therapy before going through a process of law enforcement. But these laws say, no, do law enforcement now. Otherwise, you don't get the chance to be able to terminate uh, a pregnancy. 
it's just cruel. And one could say it's cruel and unusual and therefore violates our Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution. So can we speak to women on the coasts in New York and California who are feeling like, yes, I, I feel terrible for women in these states, but it, it might not affect me because I'm in a liberal state. How safe are we? What are the chances that we could be impacted even in blue states? Well, even in recent years, there has been a prosecutor in Kings County in California that has prosecuted women who've had stillbirths for murder. Now, in each case, those charges have ultimately been dropped. And ultimately, the state of California enacted legislation to prevent that kind of prosecutions, those kinds of prosecutions. But, you know, that said, California is only as safe as the people that end up being elected. Given that this is a landscape where there's so much money being funneled into elections in order to produce unequal outcomes, outcomes that are inconsistent with constitutional principles and values, it would only take um, the fueling in of resources, of commercials, et cetera, to try to begin to chip away at what has been established in California. But before, you know, folks get nervous, let me say what has been terrific in California, in New York, Midwest, Illinois, Colorado, certainly with California, the effort to embed in the state's constitution protections for reproductive freedom. Bravo, California. But let me also say there is a bravo for Kentucky, given the last election, in that um, there was a ballot initiative in Kentucky to embed in that state's constitution anti-abortion um, language, and it failed. So, you know, I would say a silver lining in these spaces has been the use of the electoral space, the use of referenda, Michigan too, in order to protect reproductive freedoms. And then also the use of referendums to try to push against lawmakers trying to embed hostile language into law. So what can people like me do? Like someone who doesn't have a law degree, someone who's not in politics, what what can people do? Well, that's a very good question. And there are many things that people can do. So one is to support abortion funds. These funds help to provide resources to people who need them to be able to travel in dignity to other states in order to be able to get the medical care that they need, including abortions. These funds may also help them with childcare while they're out of town, help them with the cost of hotel, help them with the cost of transportation. Um, it's not free to be able to terminate a pregnancy in another state. Yeah, you know, you can travel and get there and interstate movement is protected even though these states are claiming that it isn't that hostile anti-abortion states are threatening folks going out of town. But um, that's one thing. 
Another thing, and I know that people may get exhausted hearing it, but voting really does matter. Showing up to the polls really does matter. Um, making sure that the right boxes, the boxes that you, you know, that, that represent freedom and equality, however it is described, and really reading clearly these ballot initiatives, because like the one in Michigan, which was confusing to certain voters, or the, you know, in, um, in Kansas, confusing to certain voters, right? So reading clearly and understanding what the ballot actually calls for. I think people becoming far more educated is really important about these issues. And so I'm glad that you're taking up these concerns on your podcast because we tend to be so ahistorical and tend to think that these are just blips in time rather than understanding the lengthy journey of the sort of quest for freedom and equality in our country, including that specifically associated with reproductive rights and freedom. We have a question for you from one of our listeners who wrote in. Her name is Emily, and she asked, you're doing so much important work. You know, things seem a little bit dire right now. What gives you the hope to keep going and keep working and keep speaking and keep writing? Thank you for that question, Emily. In part, I'm driven by our foremothers. You know, for so many of us, we are the wildest dreams of our grandmothers and great-grandmothers and great-great-grandmothers. We're talking about people who were denied the right to be able to vote, uh, denied the opportunity to exercise their thoughts by achieving an education, denied the opportunity to show their grit um, outside of the factories, uh, but inside the schools of medicine and the halls of law, um, at the, you know, in the banks, in the places where uh, our democracy, it you know, happens to be articulated. And so I think that in thinking about our foremothers, I think, okay, well, there's so much that they endured, so much strength that um, that they drew upon within that it's important for us to do the same. How can we not? Um, we actually have some of the privileges that exist because of their hard work. And my sense is that given that, who am I to stop? I love that answer so much. I almost, that almost gave me a little tear. I'm going to carry that with me for sure. Thank you. So you also have a podcast. Um, yes. I, tell us all about it. So my podcast on the issues with Michelle Goodwin, it launched during the period of COVID at Ms. Magazine. I am the executive producer of Ms. Studios, where we are now in the um, flow of producing additional podcasts that we'll be revealing later this year. And with my podcast, just like with you and podcasting, it provides the opportunity to elevate stories, to meet people, to be able to showcase that, which um, may be getting attention in popular mainstream press, but also that which is not being given the attention and the platform that it deserves. And I enjoy being able to present those stories to our listeners. And I really, delight in our listeners embracing 
the people um, that we bring on. And those individuals range from members of Congress and state legislatures uh, to people who are in Hollywood, like Amy Brenneman and so many others. And I'm thinking uh, just recently, I'm very excited about uh, a book that Julie Sook has written, which basically takes on the American establishment of law itself as being complicit in the status of uh, women right now. Um, and that is complicit in um, creating conditions of harm um, for women in these times. And so I, I enjoy it very, very much. Thank you so much for that question. I Can you explain to our listeners the historical, the historical significance of Ms. Magazine? Yes. Well, this year is the 50th year anniversary of Ms. Magazine, and it was founded by Gloria Steinem um, as a feminist publication that's not just uh, quick takes. Some quick takes are important and we have those online, but truly engage investigative reporting that is taking place by people who really know the field well. And so Ms. Magazine from the very beginning has been one that has been um, intersectional. I know that is a term that gets so used today, but let me say that the earliest people that were writing with Ms. Magazine were people who uh, were non-binary and LGBTQ, as well as women of color across the spectrum, there wasn't the sort of sense that we're reserving those voices for this particular issue. And otherwise, it's just going to be white women talking about the concerns of white women. Ms. Magazine was founded on a principle of true equality uh, and liberation for uh, all people. And that as a feminist magazine, it's one that believes in women being able to shape and influence uh, political agendas, judicial agendas, all sorts of agendas for lifting up the betterment of all peoples. That's really what Ms. Magazine is about. We, we like to say that at Ms., um, we're not just a magazine, but a movement and that everybody picks up a broom, <laughs> everybody washes the windows. It's so cool that after 50 years, it is still thriving and living and it, morphing. And it's a podcast, you know, there's a podcast now from print to a podcast. I mean, it's so cool. Thank you. It's Thank so you so cool. much. We're really, really proud of that. So cool. So before we wrap up, I have a few more, just more fun questions that I just want to ask to get to know you a little bit better. So something we ask all of our guests is, what do you think is the best advice you've ever gotten? You know, I've gotten so much advice. And so let me just say that of the advice that I've gotten, I remember once um, I, I got advice that it wasn't exactly this framework, but, but essentially when in Rome. and the win in Rome was really helpful in terms of thinking about how we approach problem solving in different spaces that we're new to. I mean, there's one thing to sort of bring on the kind of way that we would do things someplace else, but that may not be as effective as getting to know the cultural milieu that one is seeking to engage in and coming in perhaps more responsibly, more respectfully, one that 
shows um, a sense of, um, well, a sense of respect for the people that you're going to be working with. And so that, that comes to mind. And, and I would say another one too, that um, I once heard a good friend say, people shouldn't suck up and kick down, right? You know, that there are people who will go through life looking to suck up to people and at the same time treating people that they see underneath them in poor ways. It's not a way to live life. It's not a way to engage in business. It's not a way to work. No, and I haven't heard it put so succinctly like that. That's a, that's a really good one. Thank you. Another thing we ask all of our guests is, is there a woman right now who's currently really inspiring you in this phase of your life? Oh, that's a really great, great question. There are so many women who are inspiring me right now. Um, I've long been inspired by the work of Dorothy Roberts. I've long been inspired by the work of Lori Andrews, who's been pathbreaking in another aspect of reproductive um, health care freedom rights, and that includes with thinking about um, assisted reproductive technologies and biotechnologies. You know, I'm always enthused about Fannie Lou Hamer. I'm always enthused about Polly Murray. I'm enthused about Patricia Williams, who wrote the book Alchemy of Race and Rights. I'm enthused by um, younger generation of scholars that are coming to the forefront and with such energy and integrity. I'm inspired by my daughter. I am always thinking that I'm learning so much more from her about how to be um, a good human being. It's something that's always on my mind, and I think that she practices it very well. Um, Alex, I'm inspired by being on this podcast with you and the thoughtfulness that you bring to this space. So I'm often inspired. I'll tell you that uh, my students, and they inspire me as well. I really, really love uh, and feel fortunate to do what I do. I love um, being a professor. I, I enjoy it very much. And I really, really appreciate my students. So I draw inspiration there too. That's a great answer. Michelle, I also, you mentioned you do so many things. You're a writer, you're an author, you're speak, you're always giving and kind of putting energy out. So my last question is, I'm dying to know what you do for yourself to recharge. You do so, you're, you're so generous with your time. You do so much serious work. What do you do to kind of fill back up? Well, yoga is very important. And and I try to practice it as consistently as possible. And in uh, these times, I'm actually doing uh, some virtual practice with uh, on different days of the week with friends. So and that's been very sweet. It's an early morning routine, but that's been uh, that's been quite lovely. Sleep is really important. I really appreciate being able to be to to unwind in good conversation with people too, which on one hand is sort of like, doesn't that sound like work in the podcasting that you do? But you know, I think being able to sit and relate is something that is a privilege, and I appreciate that too. And I will also say good spa days are really important. And, uh, you know, and being able to carve out that time and be affirmative 
in carving out that kind of time is very good and important too. We love a good put down your phone spa day over around here. So yeah, helps a lot. Exactly. Well, Michelle, I was so honored to be able to sit down with you today. Thank you so much. I feel like we, I could have asked you a hundred million more questions. You're just such a wealth of knowledge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more content, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and give us a follow at Obsessed with the Best Pod on Instagram and TikTok. Hosted on dimlywit.com.